0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hi, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening to the Organic Wine Podcast. Our guest for this episode is Elizabeth Whitlow, Executive Director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance. The Regenerative Organic Alliance is the nonprofit that administers regenerative organic certification. And if you haven't heard of regenerative organic certification, then it's my great pleasure to introduce you to what I hope will become the new global standard for viticulture and agriculture. Elizabeth walks us through how ROC, or ROC, Regenerative Organic Certification, was created to address some of the lacks for the current National Organic Certification by creating standards for soil health, animal welfare, and social equity. It's that last part that we focus on in this interview, labor and worker treatment specifically. ROC combines standards from fair trade certifications and other respectful labor practices to build one of its three pillars on one of the most overlooked aspects of wine, the people who grow it. It goes without saying that the first step in treating vineyard workers well is to not have them work in an environment polluted with poisonous pesticides and herbicides. But the need for honoring these workers goes far beyond this, and the issues around agricultural labor are extremely complicated and global. Elizabeth digs into some of these and presents solutions that the Regenerative Organic Certification is aiming to achieve. But at the end of the day, our attitudes and choices as consumers may have the most power of all. Each one of us has incredible power to change the way our food and wine is grown. We vote for the way we want our fellow humans, the farm workers, to be treated multiple times per day with every bite of food or sip of wine that we take. If we feel entitled to cheap wine and food, well, we might get it, but someone's paying for it. Farming is hard work and risky. With climate change, it's getting harder and riskier. And it creates not only our personal health and well being, but the health and well being of the entire global ecosystem. Maybe it's time we start considering what that is actually worth. A big thanks to Elizabeth for this great interview and for the work that she's doing with the Regenerative Organic Alliance to give us all a way to improve the lives of farm workers around the world. Enjoy! Hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast, and hey. thanks for having this conversation.
1: Hey, Adam. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: It's really my pleasure. I, yeah, to, By way of introduction, you are the Executive Director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance, uh, which is the nonprofit that provides regenerative organic certification, right?
1: That's it. You got it.
0: Awesome. Um, I just wanted to start by just reading something from your website, from the Regenerative Organic website. Um, And it's this, our vision. We envision a world free of poisonous chemicals, factory farming, exploitation, and income inequality. Soil degradation, habitat destruction, pollution, short-term thinking, corporate bullies, greenwashing, and fake food. Instead, we imagine a world in which farmers, brands, policymakers, educators, researchers, and individuals join together to create a healthy food system that respects land and animals, empowers people, and restores communities and ecosystems through regenerative organic farming. Yeah. And I love that. Me too. <laughs> I, just, I, wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to read it because I love it. There's so many things about it, I love, but honestly, it's the vision behind like why Wendy and I started our winery here in South Los Angeles. And I, yeah, I just think it's, I want people to hear that because it is, that's, that's a, it's a really beautiful (laughs) and wonderful vision that I think we should all share. You know, I can tell
1: you where we came with that vision. (laughs) Yeah, please. Yeah. It was really fun. It was the first in-person board retreat. And it was when Rose Macario was still um, the CEO at Patagonia and, a fearless leader on our board. And we were all gathered on the coast of California in a cold, blustery January at this place called the Mushroom Farm in Pescadero. Nice. And um, not those kind of mushrooms, although, with David <laughs> oh. Bronner involved, you would never know because he's deeply <laughs> invested in that um, psilocybin for um, healing and for.
0: Nice. Um, all yeah. kinds
1: of purposes. But anyway, we were there at this um really cool budding facility for regenerative organic on the coast there. And um we were working on it. I was like, all right, we've gotta work on this mission, vision, values statement, and um it just came together so organically, and we had this wonderful person helping us in communications and We had this meeting, everybody brainstorming, brainstorming. And Zoe goes away and then she comes back and really basically reads it out. And we all let out a cheer, you know, especially after the greenwashing and the fake food part. And, Uh, you know, like um, we also just came with our, our mission at that time, I think, which is also equally beautiful that we exist to heal a broken system, repair a damaged planet and empower farmers and eaters to create a better future through regenerative organic agriculture. And that That's one great. sentence, it's just really powerful. And I think, you know, if we let that be everything we do and and lead us in all our efforts, then we're going to do all right. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> well, let's, let's as, a, as a way to start with a big picture look at our food and beverage system that will get everyone's attention. I know that you have at your fingertips some pretty startling statistics about the U S food system. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of pull some stuff out of your pocket, like, you know, that would some, some, yeah, some statistics.
1: Sure. I mean, I think you're probably referring to the fact that only 1%, it's actually less than 1% of our farm land is managed organically. So that means 99 plus percent is commonly going to be receiving chemical applications. And by chemical applications, I'm talking about conventional agrochemicals, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, and things that really uh, are there to destroy life. And so if we look at that um, and think about the opportunity there to really turn this around, that we've got that much land to convert to organic that, you know, that's, I try to look at that and think about the um, more hopeful side of that equation that, okay, we've got a lot of work to do, but we've got a lot of opportunity. I think the other part is just that, you know, we've been talking, gosh, well, we've been talking a little longer than we've been recording, but, um, you know, we're losing 30 (laughs) soccer fields of soil every minute. And wow. so since you've started recording, you know, we've, we've lost quite a few soccer fields wow. of soil. And, you know, it's it, another interesting statistic about topsoil is it's we're losing it at a rate 10 times faster than it is being replenished. Wow. And so, you know, with uh, soil being such a, a keen focus for us here at the Regenerative Organic Alliance, like the, anything we can do to keep soil in the ground, keep it covered, building healthy soil, building that soil microbiome um, is going to to help us, um, you know, prevent all kinds of other problems that come along with the loss of our topsoil. And scientists are, are estimating that we only have 50 or 60 harvests left as topsoil blows away. Like, what are we gonna do then? We can't eat out of a hydroponic factory, you know, so. <laughs> Yeah, preserving that soil and keeping it on the ground is, is I think, um, really one of the most important things we can do.
0: And I, I've heard a statistic you've mentioned about how far our food travels to get to our plate. Like an oh. average, on average, what, what is the, what is
1: that? One? Well, I think my um, my stat on that is way off. But when I first became very. Uh, um, really passionate about working in food and agriculture was when I learned it was 1600 calories. Um, and I'm miles. sure it's so much farther or 1600 miles. I'm sorry for each calorie on your plate. Whoa. Um,
0: really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. What, what do you have? What's yours?
0: No, that, that was, that's, that's kind of what I remember hearing from you. So I didn't. Yeah. I didn't like, yeah. Well, um, I
1: did some research on this a few years ago and I saw it only increased to 1800 or 2000. 2,000 miles, but it just can't be true. And um, I don't know who's out there quantifying this, but if you think about uh, all the miles that are put between uh, our food, we we have such a global food supply now. And a lot of those statistics were probably done back when, like you know, Central California is feeding the world. Michael Pollan writes so well on this back with his Omnivore's Dilemma. And talked about you know all the spent calories to get some lettuce to the table in say upstate new york in the middle of winter and that it's you know the um the carbon emissions and the fuel spent to get that plate of lettuce to the consumer's table uh far outweigh any calories that they absorb (laughs) by eating it so you know just looking at that the life cycle analysis Uh or eco yeah. footprint analysis of anything we eat. I think it's just, um, it's a really powerful way to help guide your decisions and, yeah. and help drive your purchases to support your local food, local farmers, local food economy, local food shed. So um, yeah, that's just, it's a real passion um, for me. It's just like figuring out how to eat local. Now that said, I, I don't, I also have to, say like this i now here with the roc we are a very global program and we're working in many different countries and so i don't want to sound like a hypocrite <laughs> but um <laughs> people do love their coffee and their chocolate and their coconut oil and yeah things like that and those do have to travel quite a ways
0: yeah no I'm, I'm learning so much about this too i mean i i know that there's like a, a a a bay nut in california that might be like a coffee substitute if you're a if you're into stimulants and want something local (laughs) yeah yeah although we are growing coffee now in santa barbara you You
1: sure are yeah that coffee's (laughs) getting some acclaim and it's actually really doing well in some of the um you know the coffee cupping among coffee brokers and coffee buyers it's it's actually performing really well and i know of other folks in that region who are planting coffee and having success with it I think that's just another indication of what's going on with climate change and also yeah. you know just knowing what's a real challenge for coffee growers um, around that subtropical zone where it's grown is that they've got this huge problem really intractable problem with this disease called this coffee rust and it's yeah. really hard to find the organic tools to fight the coffee rust so yeah. it could be a time where you know coffee is going to march north and, and high up you know, I've been, um, at altitude
0: here. In the yeah. Northern climate, so, yeah, I think bananas face a similar plight where there's, there's like, we we eat one banana globally and there's, Oh, it would take would be one blight. Like you were saying the coffee rust that would could wipe out the global banana trade. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it's very divergent. We diverge. (laughs) (laughs) Away from wine. uh... Well, it's the same with wine, though, Adam. And
1: I'm in Sonoma County, and, you know, uh, we have been – it's been declared like there is a drought emergency here, and they're looking for federal assistance for Sonoma and Mendo for this Mendocino because this year we are just operating with very little water, and the grape growers and all the agriculture around here is going to be in peril. And – I think also, you know, vineyards are moving north and the vineyards that are here, the varietals that were planted are going to have to change so that, yeah, they can adapt to this more, um, you know, a lot longer dry period and hotter dry periods than we've been accustomed to in the past.
0: Yeah, I've definitely covered a little bit of that on this podcast where we, you know, I definitely believe that natives are, natives and hybrids with natives are, The future of Mm -hmm. the wine if you know for so many reasons yeah um i've I've definitely made an effort to help listeners understand that nothing's perfect first of all but certainly organic certification while it's a great first step has some has some problems or some lacks maybe um and i think that was known even at the outset of of organic certification but could you talk about why you know, because of that, it was considered important and necessary to create the regenerative organic certification.
1: Certainly. I, and just to get, give a little more background on the regenerative organic alliance or the ROA is that we were founded by Patagonia Company and Dr. Bronner's and the Rodale Institute. And so, um, those three are, um, uh, huge supporters for organic, obviously, if you know of Rodale, they basically brought organic um, farming to the U.S. Um, many, many years ago with uh, all their different publications, and they've got 40 years of research happening at their trial farm up in Pennsylvania. Um, Patagonia and Bronner's have huge organic supply, supply chain going on, so they uh, do not want to go away from organic, but what they saw was this weakening of the organic rule where there was an allowance for more factory farms and where there was this pending really um, huge concern that hydroponics were going to be allowed for organic and that is what happened um, in 2017 that the um, NOSB recommended that hydroponics be allowed for organic and so they felt like the writing was really on the wall that they needed to do something to essentially put a stake in the ground to like really um, keep the organic program strong. And so their idea was to create this framework that's based on organic, right? And so it, it builds from there. Organic is the baseline because that is the strongest label you can get right now, um, right. really, but then they wanted to add in these other components which we have three pillars. It's there's the soil health, animal welfare and then the social fairness and i think we'll get into that in a yes. little bit but that social fairness to farmers and farm workers um, that's something that will never be included in the national organic program law animal welfare should have but it was removed um, by the trump administration and after many years of debate within the organic industry to improve the animal welfare regulations finally got it approved. And then it it basically was eviscerated. And so that has led to um, a lot of, you know, more factory farms or very, very large scale dairies and poultry farms. Um,
0: So that are also also, organic still.
1: They're organic. Yes, they are organic. They are bringing in organic feed. Um, If they're dairies, they have to meet this certain minimum of time on pasture. But Uh, We felt like you could do a whole lot better and that if you have pasture based systems and don't allow massive CAFOs or confined animal feedlot operations that you allow those animals to lead a much healthier lifestyle. They can express their natural behaviors. They are not so prone to getting sick, just like us. You're out exercising and taking care of yourself. And if, say, you were a ruminant and designed to eat grass, that that's what you eat mostly, you're going to be a lot healthier. Yeah. So, um, yeah, looking at supporting those systems and those types of operations and then also with our emphasis on soil health, um, you know, there was certainly some, some lapses in the organic rule on tillage and cultivation. Mm-hmm. And there's been a huge rush into this sector of regenerative in, since I came into this role. Um, You know, I I mean, people were hardly able to say the word regenerative then. And now it's like on everybody's lips and um, (laughs) everybody's jumping in, you know, from Cargill to Walmart. And so, (laughs) you know, if you've got all these big players now seeing the fact that this concept of regenerative is um, it's really powerful and it resonates with people. And so the ROA exists to prevent this from being regen washed or green washed and being weakened we want to keep this concept really strong and develop this high bar standard that demonstrates and clarifies really what regenerative can and should be and and that is a holistic type of agriculture that regenerates resources and and also considers every living being in that farm system from the soil microbiome to the animal to the worker
0: that's cool yeah and the worker aspect is really what, you know, I, when I reached out to you, that's the part that I was most interested in talking to you about, um, because I feel like it's the most confusing or complicated and, and overlooked at times too, because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, just because of who, who is working in the farms, in the vineyards, in these large operations, um, so i can we can we start by sort of talking about what what labor looks like in california let's say california but any labor problems or statistics that you have for the u.s in general um i mean I, we'll come back to that i i just want to frame it be because i think the the problem that we're all aware of in the wine industry is that we if you have more than a hectare or two of land that you're farming at a couple times a year only, you're going to need a large labor force, yeah. but only for a short period of time. Right. And it's what where do they come from if they're not there year round? Right. Where do those employees come from? And right. how do you care for them when they're not on your farm? Like what, you know, like how do you just have people magically appear to prune in the winter and harvest in the fall yeah. and then nothing in between you know
1: um
0: and that's a just a reality like if you don't have a family of 12 you know and are farming a your own you know 12 acre farm like it's hard to it's hard to manage without you know bringing in people that aren't on your farm yeah absolutely so yeah so i mean and this is I, i say that with complete empathy and uh you know just understanding like no judgment because we all know that that's just a reality of farming, um, in any yeah. capacity, whether it's grapes or anything that gets planted and then harvested later. Yep. Um, so yeah, for, in, in, with that framework, can you, can you add any, any yeah. understanding to the problems and statistics at all?
1: Um, I, I can, I can add a few things to that. So I, I would say first off in this year and couple months now since COVID, um, I think we've all really seen the effects. There's been a really glaring spotlight placed on what is happening to marginalized communities and um, farm workers are certainly would certainly be categorized in that group. And many of our farm workers, in fact, are um, not documented. They're in undocumented immigrants who are coming here because the lure of the work, they know they can come up here and get work. And in fact, I think it's about 60 to 65% of our farm labor is coming from this resource. So that makes them very prone to all kinds of unfair labor practices. And really those domestic realities of unfair labor practices in our entire food system usually go unseen and they disproportionately affect those populations. I'd say it was really obvious what was going on to anybody who was watching the news last year, because we saw what happened to all those essential frontline workers in say, the meat packing plants. They were getting sick in record numbers and, right. you know, because they had to go to work. They don't have access to health care. Typically, they don't have health insurance. They can't afford to take a day off. They don't have fair, you know, very safe working conditions all the time. And so you know, for those populations, it was a huge risk. And, um, and we saw with the mortality rate among people who worked in that sector. So, you know, addressing those problems with our um, labor situation here is it's incredibly complicated. Um, but, you know, we're trying to do it with our certification program that is basically bringing that fair trade certification model to the domestic market there are some other entities doing this, and um, certainly there's other certifications that we recognize that are doing a great job with this. And and I think you know as as we all begin talking about it more, then we're going to start solving some of these seemingly intractable problems. Um, there's Equitable Food Initiative is doing great work with this. There's the Ag Justice Project social certification that is um, I think they're still looking for a certifier to for their project that is um, languished a bit but they're more up in the northeast Um, and Fair Trade USA for example they have some certifications they're doing here but I believe our program with that combination of the soil animal and human element um, that we're going to really gain some traction and we're really going to be able to help, um, help these workers get the kind of pay they deserve and get the working conditions they deserve and also prevent things that are, you know, much more common than we'd like to believe. And that is the use of child labor and trafficked human trafficking.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. And you're talking, I'm guessing globally, not just like California when you Talk about these things or are you specifically talking about california
1: i when i say here i'm meaning domestically in the u.s uh, and okay. how we've separated it out in our pillar is um we're using somewhat politicized terms there of global south and global north okay. um the fair trade certification schemes have been working um and very present in the global south for probably 25 30 years and i have some very passionate members of my board who have been involved in that for nearly as long, probably. And, you know, like when I think consumers are much more familiar with buying fair trade coffee, fair trade chocolate, um, fair trade bananas, because they've, you know, those violations in those, um, you know, those other countries, Global South or developing or however you want to call those countries where they didn't have the same kind of labor laws and protections that we have here. Um, Those violations were, um, you know, really potent and disturbing for people to think that because they wanted to eat this nice chocolate bar that, you know, children were enslaved in the production of it. Like nobody can tolerate that. Typically I think a lot of those kind of ethical values are going to stop you from buying anything like that so um you know the the social fairness certifications are are um, very much more in use in the global south here in the global north or in the domestic markets of the us of europe australia japan like there there are more provisions there to protect the workers and allow for unions and collective bargaining and things like that but still we have a long way to go in this country. And especially because many of those workers are not documented. So um, they don't have as many protections.
0: Yeah, it was, I imagine it's difficult um, w- covering all of those bases. I mean, in, in some cases you're you're trying to prevent literally like slave labor of children. And in yeah. other places, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that's not as big of a problem in California, I hope. Um, yeah, you'd hope. But, yeah but but there are other more you know concerns that are still here that are you know just have a different nature a different caliber um like what are you using to have a one you know i i'm I'm guessing it's really hard to have a one size fits all yeah measures so i'm I'm, yeah i guess my question is can we dig into how you're measuring some of these things and and how you're applying them in various areas
1: and you touched on it earlier, too, when you were talking about how, you know, these maybe smaller vineyards or vineyards that are going to have harvest. It comes all at once and you need, um, you know, a whole crew of laborers to come in for pruning or for harvest. And um, so there's there's a frequent common use of labor contractors here. And so um, the labor contractors, some of them, I think, can be very great, very good to their um Know, treat their those uh, they're not really employees but to treat, treat the laborers quite well with providing um, you know fair pay and ensuring similar benefits to what the staff might get but um, we do have our criteria that go into much more detail on this and we have a whole s- section about the use of labor contractors so if a farm is using recruited or contracted labor then um, there's certain provisions that the employer needs to prove that they have done to ensure that these people are getting the same rights and treatment as the direct employees. Um, and, And then we have auditors who will be going out to verify that. And so in this case what we're finding here in the domestic market is it's really tricky because those labor contractors don't necessarily have to answer to the auditors Right. Um, and it may put the farmer who is aiming for the rock certification. It may put them at a disadvantage now because the the labor contractors are like, Oh gosh, I don't want to work with those folks over there. Cause then they're going to have an auditor try and look at all our paperwork, you know? So right. it, um, it's going to require, I think it's just going to be a long road and aiming for more transparency and ensuring that these same standards apply to all the employees and that. Um, You know, that there's an access to a grievance process is one example, or that, you know, there's the right to be free of forced labor, and that they can't have any unfair deductions from their paycheck. And some labor contractors do many of these things. And Mm. um, yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of different ways it can go south. And I think in the southeast, there's been some Really good work done. The coalition of Amakali workers, if you're familiar with that case, um, they were no, no, go ahead, yeah. Please. So they it's Food Justice Project, and they, um, I mean, they were basically treating people as slaves and pass, practically chaining them up at night and working all day, you know. And so this coalition of workers gathered and um, got some support to go and um, you know really effectively lobby on behalf of the workers and they did this by pressuring the companies the brands that were purchasing these tomatoes for ketchup so go figure like some fast food chains so these you know these large fast food companies were purchasing tomatoes for their ketchup and sure they were getting a great price on the tomatoes but perhaps unwittingly supporting um these conditions where people were practically enslaved so that coalition of Immokalee workers did a lot of um, great work and they're continuing to do it. Um, they have a very different approach than what we do because the ROC program is a voluntary certification. And what we're trying to do is really drive that consumer awareness and so that consumers can go and purchase this product that has that ROC claim on the front of it and that it will entire, it will answer a whole suite of their values you know, from environmental, ethical, and, and and just like if they're for animal welfare or vegan, like it's going to, um, you know, vegan vote, I would say that we have a couple um, very strong voices from the animal welfare community on our board, and, and we're there at the table at the beginning in the formation of, of this framework, and um, they are constantly advocating on the animal welfare side of things, even though they don't even eat animals or livestock products, but for them it's um, you know it's a win-win if you can um, implement these these better practices for animals who are going to be raised for consumption anyway. So that is just something that is um, you know another really important part of the Rock framework is that animal welfare pillar and um, treating the animals well. So. Yeah. As I said earlier, all living beings in the system.
0: Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, well, have have you guys? I know you've reached out and done some sort of pilot certifications. This is a, a new certification in the in the world of certifications, um, relatively speaking. And, yeah. and you've done some pilot projects. Have you considered, or is it would it even be possible for? a vineyard or farm labor contracting company to to get an roc certification yeah
1: totally i mean th- all they need to do is be transparent with us yeah. and show how they meet our criteria and we already have a number of them who are cooperating with us and uh, or with i shouldn't say with us but with the auditors who are going out there and i mean just to give you a little perspective on that is we completed our pilot program last year. We did that around the world. We had 19 different pilot farms, some of those representing thousands of growers uh, in smallholder settings. Um, some of them, you know, here in the U.S. Uh, um, in the States, we actually did a vineyard in your region, Tablas Creek, who you're probably familiar <laughs> yeah. with. They've been incredible partners to us. And um, And actually, if you haven't, had jason on your show yet you should because he's got such great insight into the benefits of the social fairness certification and what it did for their crew what it did for morale and um things that they learned about their crew that they they had no idea um it was really it was super inspiring so they underwent the training with equitable food initiative where they come out and do a full like I think it's three full days of training, everybody out of the vineyard in a a classroom setting, essentially for um, the whole crew and a whole, you know, this three day course on different labor practices, different ways for um, management to work with, with their crew and for people to work together. And I think they learned a lot by it. So they went through that whole training and got set up for eventually having an audit by a social auditor who came in and interviewed everybody. And um, you know they have to be able, they have to be willing to open their books. You know we are all about transparency and like looking at um, a living wage. For example, every operation needs to be on track to paying a living wage, and it's shockingly harder than you think to pay a living wage and really difficult to determine what a living wage is depending on where you are there's a lot of different tools for this and it's all okay. on our website in our in our framework and I got a, an appendix several pages long with different resources on how to determine what a living wage is
0: is that something is that a resource that let's say just a uh, your basic winery owner could just go to and look it up and and calculate their own oh yeah for there
1: their... yep the um mit has one too um okay so you could look up the mit one that's for a domestic market it's mit plus 10 percent is what um the the founders of the roa determined to be acceptable but i can just tell you that you know striving towards that living wage is going to be a struggle and um any operation that comes into the rock program basically will enter at bronze and progress towards gold over time so this is building this concept of continuous improvement so you don't simply achieve certification and then stop there you know you're always striving to incorporate more regenerative practices and improve you know further improve the um, conditions for your animals or um, the treatment of your workers or further increase their salary from or their pay from perhaps minimum wage here in California is on par with living wage in some regions, but you do have to really be specific to the region and look at the cost of living in that surrounding area and what it would take for a worker to support a family. And right. um, we also have provisions provisions in the framework that will restrict um, the number of, of overtime hours that are required Um, This one seems to be a point of contention because as you know, some of the farms are telling us that, you know, this is putting us at a disadvantage to my neighbors because at harvest season, these workers are here to work. They're here to to make a lot of money and they don't want to rest like you all want them to rest. So
0: um,
1: that's something that we're going to have to continue discussing Um, right now. We have it as like a 60 hour work week. Unless there's, um, you know, for some distinct periods, um, but that you know, people need to rest. They need to have a, uh, some time off, and um, so that's you know one of those areas of our certification that I think we'll be continuing to discuss. And you know, if they're going to work overtime, that to ensure that those they're getting paid for the overtime, and to ensure that they are allowed regular resting breaks and. Um, That's, you know, those are just, it's it's a principle that is kind of hard to get your head around, perhaps if you're working like a 40-hour work week, but.
0: Right. It sounds like a really complicated and individualized calculation when you come to labor and living wage. And I I was talking with uh, another vineyard who's undergoing ROC, the Going the Rock Certification, and they're, they were talking about how you know the the number of children is a factor in whether it's a living wage that somebody's being paid and you know and I, I you know just once i heard that i was like well there must be i mean think about all of the other elements that become relevant to whether it's a living wage or not for yeah. per, per an individual um so that's a difficult one what what are some of the other you know sort of things have you encountered that are difficult points that you you know you've had to you've had an idea going into it and you've had to expand that idea and, right. and adapt new to new information as you've gone through this process
1: yeah um what i would also want to say at the outset that this framework the rock framework is a living document and because we're not the national organic program we're going to be more nimble and able to change um, with the learnings that we're taking in and so I think everybody recognizes this and, um, you know, within the ROA. And we don't expect to be changing or updating the ROC framework all the time. I'm hoping for just once per year. But, um, that you know, if we get enough stakeholder feedback and the sub, the standards committees will weigh in on these issues, make a recommendation to the board, and then we would change the criteria. And so, you know, so, for so, so that's
0: if I if I have a problem with the certification, I shouldn't freak out and start a public exactly. uh, a public PR campaign against the ROC. I should just let you know. <laughs> exactly, that's a really and you might good... actually uh, absorb that information and change completely. Yeah, I love and, that. Okay, yeah, and and
1: we did this during the pilot. We had this whole process where the, if there was a you know an exemption requested or a deviation from the framework, a significant deviation, then we would have a whole formal process that to go through, where it's put before the standards committee, of you know, a team of, of folks who have expertise in whichever pillar or topic, and they would discuss it, debate it, and then um, make a recommendation to the board. And so, you know, I think it's really important to have that stakeholder involvement and make sure that we are engaging in conversation Um, With everybody who is implementing this, it's it's why the section that you and I talked about before we started recording, the section on um, soil health, where we when we were out the gate, the the first version of the Rock Framework was no till. Then farmers were kind of in an uproar, (laughs) and as you can imagine, it became conservation tillage. And after the results of the pilot and the learnings that you know tillage is a tool and it needs to be used wisely and not um, you know not to over till, but that the really the main goal there is to minimize soil disturbance to minimize destroying that soil microbiome. And so, um, you know, it just depended on how deep you till and how often you till and so now we have a tillage action plan. And that's just a really good example of how this framework has um, evolved over time and with the input from our valued stakeholders, and that would be farmers out there who this affects.
0: It, um, it, I mean that's a really good example uh, that and and I'm, I'm guessing labor is another one you know I mean yeah. people who work where it, there it, it's almost impossible for there to be a one size fits all solution because of the different laws that are in place in terms oh. of labor in various countries and various states even they, you know they're very different and then just climate and geography in terms of tillage is you know I can just yep. imagine there's no way you could ever just have a, you know, like, here's our one regulation thing that you must abide by because yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, you from, from Northern California to Southern California, you could have a hundred different <laughs> variations, you know, just yeah. in this state of, of what would work best in terms of all the factors involved, you know, carbon sequestering and, you know, conservation of soil and, you know, and, and soil health, you know, it could be yeah like I can imagine every iteration of of tillage being good in some spot you know how how do you do that like how does how does the certification encompass that kind of
1: yeah I I don't know if that's a
0: problem or an opportunity but that kind of diversity of of need and yeah
1: yeah I think um I, I' completely agree with you. you cannot have a one size fits all kind of standard that would work in every unique location. I mean, regenerative practices are going to be as unique as the um, the region in which they are being practiced the, the microclimate, the soil, um, the seeds or the crops that that farmer is growing and how she manages her land. it is all going to um, you know be very unique to. That system. If if you look closely at our framework, though, you can see that it's it's very much a practice-based program. Right. Our our um, our certification. So we're going out and looking at practices, and that um, it seems to have general applicability, and it, it seems to have really worked fairly well um, based on testing it out during our pilot. And in the pilot, we were in you know we we tried this out in all different settings. You know from annual crops to perennial crops from temperate zones to semi-temperate zones with small holders with large farms, um, grass-fed based dairies. We didn't test it out quite enough at enough uh, livestock operations I would say and so we still have I believe some um, changes that will be made in the animal welfare pillar but we really based it off the best of the best animal welfare certifications that exist and that's um, that's one thing that we do and I didn't mention earlier and it gets a, you know, forgive me for getting a little wonky in the certification details, but we recognize 14 different certifications. And so um, if, right. a, if a farm comes to us and she has NOP organic, animal welfare approved, and um, fair trade international, then we're going to, it basically will res- meet many of our requirements, our criteria, and we adjust our, um, our uh, basically the organic system plan, the regenerative organic system plan for that operation based on what their existing certifications are. We remove any redundancies essentially so that they don't have to answer the same question twice. Um, so we really try strive to remove any kind of duplication. Um, and we're also working with any NOP accredited certifier who's interested in applying for rock um, you know, we welcome them into the fold and they, they can have their auditors go through our training program and then they could start doing these bundled audits where they're going out. And I, I believe you're certified with CCOF. Is that right? right. I mean, we operation.
0: work with vineyards. who are,
1: you work with vineyards. You are Okay. So yeah. you know, CCF, I, I spent much of, you know, much of my career there. Um, it, they're like family to me. They're a great organization. They um, are quite big now, and um, they've got really great auditors all over the place, and, and a good um, reach around California. So I'm hoping that they're going to get approved to do rock audits. And basically, they would be going out to do the annual audit, and then um, in that same context, at the same time, th- they would um, go through the rock audit. and then that way, the, the farm only has to endure this audit once or twice a year. Right. You know, uh, it depends. I, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I would love to have our um, yard certified. <laughs> <But> I don't. <laughs> No, I, don't don't do. that, I don't know that our little lot here in South Central would uh, be worth anybody's time to get certified. Probably not. No, I, think probably, you, I think we meet all criteria, though, I will say. You
1: would qualify then. Um, yes. be, you would. So you could um, go through it and not be required to be certified. Fill out an OSP and put it on file with your county ag office.
0: <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. There you go. Um, that's great. I I guess a two-part Question for you: What what do you see are still some of the biggest problems that we need to solve with our, our, with the way that labor in agriculture is is done? Especially, you know, if you can make it about viticulture, that's fantastic. But you know, agriculture generally, um, what what are the biggest problems that we're still facing? And 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 have you seen any creative solutions to some of the problems that we have?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, that's it's such a tough question. I think, like, first of all, is this idea that we have a right to have cheap food, right? Mm-hmm. Like, having cheap food, there, there's going to be a cost somewhere in that model, yeah. and so, you know, the this concept of cheap food means that we think we also get to have cheap labor to pick this food, and that everything is so disposable, and so I, I think really. Changing our mindset and valuing um, the valuing the land that produces the food and valuing those people who are producing it is um, is a really big shift that we need to consider. And as we talked about earlier, I really love the concept of a regional food shed and regional food systems. And so, you know, not just trying to buy in bulk at the cheapest price possible, really would require that people become more engaged in their um, their local ecology, their local uh, food shed and farmer network and see where they can um, drive their purchases to support what's immediately around them. And, you know, by doing that, they're supporting also cleaner water in their own direct region and uh, minimizing pollution and minimizing carbon emissions from things having to get shipped all around the country and the world. Um, So I think you know that that would be one thing for sure and you know just with labor that we're going to continue to develop this certification here and that the more consumers Inform themselves on what kind of violations to human rights are happening out there in yeah. this sector is you know it's it's incumbent on people to really uh, to understand that and I think you you talk a lot about that in your different podcasts of that you know your one your I don't know if it's your blog or your podcast but like you are a farmer you make a choice every day so essentially what you support is what matters and so I think that is just a really great message and i and i loved i loved that it was your blog
0: right yeah yeah that right that's right yeah i th- you are a farmer yeah i did a yeah it was kind of i was just trying to figure out how to shorthand what i was trying to say and i was like well this is it i mean we're all farmers so yeah the, the, like i you know in trying to get across the the power that we have as consumers that's the, the best way i can stay it Yes, um, and it's
1: that's a good way. It's like empowering people to make those choices and not guilting them into making those choices is right. It's yes. really important because you know, it, if you think about how how lucky we are where we get to choose what we eat all yeah. the time.
0: Yeah.
1: And may, some Definitely. of us many times a day in fact and you know, maybe too many times a day. <laughs> and so um but you know, just just Considering that, like, choose wisely, choose to support what is, you know, really brings more beauty here into um, into your own surroundings and into the lives of those people who are growing your food. It's really hard to farm. The margins are tight. Climate change is making it ever harder to farm. You know, you've got soil eroding at crazy rates. So, you know, whatever we can do to try and stop that and, and build um, these healthier networks of farms, healthier soil is going to lead to healthier communities. And, you know, people who are being treated fairly and paid fairly and can, you know, have access to health care or health insurance are not going to tap this, the the very systems that people in every region are paying taxes for, for example. So, you know, it's it's a pretty can be a really vicious cycle or it can be a really beautiful kind of virtuous cycle. Um So I think, you know, just looking at things in a very holistic way is key.
0: Do you have, uh, I mean, does being in your position fill you with dread or hope or somewhere in between? Oh my gosh,
1: no. I I am so full of optimism. Like if I wasn't exhausted half the time because we're so busy. (laughs) And I mean, people, it's, it's amazing to me how much we hear from people all around the world i i often do very early morning meetings with europeans in fact i have one like 4 a.m next week like it's it, it it's kind of stunning how much the word is out and people are really excited by this concept of regeneration and that um you know we seem to have gotten in this great position of you know leading this movement or being um you know one of the very well-recognized kind of players in this, as it relates to agriculture. And, you know, I certainly attribute that to our founders and their kind of, um, you know, they're just legacy companies with Bronner's and Patagonia, both leading the way and, and Rodale, of course, like we, um, we just get a lot of attention. And so for me, uh, um, the only dread I have is like that I can't get everything done well enough and in a timely enough manner you know it's that's about it
0: I, I feel that
1: yeah. <laughs> well
0: yeah. well so uh <laughs> that's probably a good segue to just say maybe we should wrap this up in respect of your time <laughs> but <laughs> I how, should probably how,
1: do something else you're right
0: <laughs> how do the, we find out more how do people you know where's the best resource that people can find out more
1: well, I'm glad you asked. Our website is regenorganic.org. Um, I will say, you know, we've, we, um, we've focused a lot of our resources on growing a really strong team for implementing this certification, and perhaps too much because I um, haven't had as much focus on, like, being the mouthpiece, being, like, the communications end of it. But we're coming to a point where that's going to start to happen now. Um, I'm going to be posting an announcement soon I hope for a um, full time communications person, and and then we will be much more active on Instagram. Right now we do basically a quarterly newsletter, and um, and so we're, we're going to really start to increase a lot of our outreach and our talking. We'll even start a Twitter. So um, yeah, we're going to join the rest of the world and start being a bit more vocal <laughs> and sharing stories of all these farmers who are going through the certification. And and you know there's we have a hundred applicants in the queue. We've had over three hundred and fifty um, inquiries and and like meetings with different brands and companies and farmers from Argentina to India to Newfoundland. Like we are all over the world and there's a lot of exciting stories to share. And, um, now that we've kind of gotten all the pieces together of our certification and we're, um, we're really launching into it. It's, um, we're going to start to tell those stories. So yeah, if you go to our email list and sign up, then we've got a nice introductory series of readings that'll keep you busy in the next couple of weeks for the next couple of weeks while we get um you know a new person in position to really help amplify the message and tell these stories
0: i love it so regenorganic.org and that's also where we could find out about the certifying uh, regulations things that we would need to do as well as calculate living wage and things like that that's all yeah yeah. yeah i love it and sign up for the email list
1: Yep. And uh, yeah, well, our hashtag on Instagram is Regenerative Organic, but um, yeah, just go have a, have a look there and follow us and um, sign up for that newsletter if you're interested to learn more. Our website has a lot of information about how. And so then the next kind of phase of this is going to be why, you know, why, why do we need Regenerative Organic now? and how what we can do to keep furthering this cause so um yeah i expect um, some really exciting months ahead and i um, getting out there and being more of more of that mouthpiece for this movement um yeah great. so thank you so much for the opportunity to join you and it's just oh. super engaging to talk to you and um you you're doing really a great service with your podcast i love it
0: Thanks. You beat me to thanking you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks so much. I will. I yeah. Can't wait to see uh, w- what's what's happened. I hope this really catches on with a lot of people. And glad it's catching on. It is catching yeah. on. I would say like <laughs>
1: wildfire, but it is catching on.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I truly appreciate your time and attention. And just want to remind you that. This podcast is sponsored by Centralis Wine. And Centralis Wine is the winery that I started with my wife to promote exactly this kind of agriculture that we talk about on this episode. If you want to learn more, please go to centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. And if you like this podcast, please give us a great review in Apple or Google Podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it would be a big help since... We do this for free otherwise. Thanks. Bye-bye.